Welcome to the party, pals. I'm Phil Gawthorne, action movie screenwriter. And I'm Liam Billingham, movie podcaster. And together we host Die Hard on a Blank, a podcast from Sugar23 that explores the influence of Die Hard on action cinema. In each episode, we'll talk about one major action movie that was released after Die Hard. Now, some of these movies take place on a bus. On a boat. Or even a roadhouse. Uh, sure. The point is, these are action movies that couldn't exist without Die Hard, and its DNA is everywhere. Die Hard on a Blank is a celebration of action movies and a deep dive into the ways that Die Hard shaped the action genre. So if you're a casual fan or an action movie Die Hard. Ooh, very nice. Then Die Hard on a Blank is for you. Yes, you personally. Our first two episodes, which are all about the original 1988 masterpiece Die Hard, drop December 21st, because Die Hard is a Christmas movie, wherever you get your podcasts. Phil, do the line. Now we have a podcast. (laughs) Ho, ho, ho. working methods, and anything else we want to talk about related to Eric Romare. I'm Liam Billingham, and I've had a little too much coffee. And I'm Sean Senevarotny, and welcome to our season two finale. Sean, you gotta come at me with the energy, man. I know. Man. You <laughs> yeah. Gotta, let's go. All right. Let's okay. go. Bring okay. it up, baby. All right. Bring it up, take baby. Take two. Take two. I'm leaving this in. Okay. Go. And I'm Sean Senevarotny, and welcome to our season two finale of Bim 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 Romare Cast, motherfucker! What about right, was... Eric Romare, but Monster Truck Rally? That's All the right. vibe that we're going for. That's here. what we're doing now. Look, if I was too low energy in the past, the... I am now Monster Truck Motherfucker Sean Senevarotny. That's, that's yeah! what you're calling me this whole episode Monster Truck Motherfucker. All right, but, but very quickly, Monster Truck Motherfucker yes. Sean Son of Rodney. What's the name of the monster trucks after after Eric Romare? The Green Ray is obviously one. Oh, yeah. There would be the... The Collector! Oh, the Green Ray. The Collector. Um, um, uh, 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 we Clearly, yeah. we didn't think about this before. The Aviator. No, that's stupid. The Aviator's... Yeah, that's the, not hardcore. Tale of Summer. I would love seeing Ooh. a monster truck <laughs> a very, called <laughs> a very poetic monster. <laughs> the Tale truck. of Summer. I mean, that's kind of what a monster truck is, right? Like town fairs. Tale of Tonight, Summer. Tonight, the collector, the Green Ray, and are you are you sure this is right? Okay, <laughs> the Tale of Summer. Tonight at Eric Romare Monster Truck Rally. Uh, I imagine a world where. One day we keep this bit going and that you and I are the two people behind the booth and the announcer booth at a monster truck rally and we get to do our sort of Romarian um, announcements. And here he comes, the celluloid and the marble. <laughs> All right, so this is the end of season two, season two finale. Sean, what's your favorite thing about a short season? Um besides it ending a short season is uh is great a season is a framing principle around which to reflect on some work and so i think uh, keeping it short really allows for a nice easy entry for listeners to kind of tap into whatever era of um romare we're happening to look at um and it allows us to look at three movies in context with each other with the question that we wrap up with um always tied to the idea of what is Romarian? So I love a short season. Love a short season. Think it's easier to do. Also gives it that whiff of prestige, you know, like a BBC show as opposed to, you know, an eight episode BBC, BBC, BBC show as opposed to like a 10 episode or 25 episode American show. Yeah. You know? Like I'm all about that UK office, oh. not that American office. Nonsense. So then. Which I'm sure that's a good, that's a good show. Don't get me I, wrong. I, I have a proposal, Liam. My proposal oh. is that in 
Sean, I'm flattered. I'm a married man. <laughs> My proposal is that any episode that is in between seasons is its own season. The same way that like a one-off like TV movie or whatever gets billed as a season. So single episodes would now, like let's say we do... Our... No, they're not seasons. They're specials. Oh, that's specials. right. They that's can't true. Be they're seasons. specials. They're but specials. it's like how The Office had the Christmas special. Right, it's special. the Christmas special. Yeah, right. that doesn't count a as a Christmas season. Special. We have a Christmas special in mind for this show that we hopefully will have time to record while I'm while I'm changing diapers. Yeah. Not Sean. <laughs> oh, yo, hey, Liam, we should record yeah. that on Christmas Eve. Uh, Potentially. We'll see. We'll see where That'd we're at. That'd be hardcore. But I'm thinking we have to do it in advance. It and then we go hard. live, live yeah. to the internet. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Mod nipping at your nose. All right. Wow, this is... Thank you, I have a nice voice. So for this wrap-up, we'll be looking at three movies. La Collection News, Percival, In the Green Ray, and asking ourselves, as we always do, what is Romarian? With a specific focus, though not entirely, on the production methods. Now, we've talked a lot about these, so this will be a little bit of a summary. We're going to try to keep it tight, which we've done a great job of doing so yeah. far. I that, that's not sarcasm, our... right? Because I do feel like we've done a pretty good job of keeping things no, pretty tight. No, I think tight. we've done yeah. a good job. I just, yeah, I think, um, I think, uh, though I would say the first six minutes of this podcast. No, no, uh, but this is... A little bit rambly. This is, we're trying out a new thing. You brought Monster Truck Motherfucker onto the show. So this is going to be some, this is going to be some different shit. What happened to Sean? <laughs> there is no Sean. This is going to be some different Only shit. Only Monster Truck Motherfucker. <laughs> Uh, let's skip Romare in the air, uh, just for the interests of brevity. And I don't really, I, I, we might try to, we might try to drop an episode. It may already have dropped where we elucidate some of our recent Romares in the air. Unless you have a one that's just calling nope. out to you. Let's get into it. All right. It's too bad. Cause I didn't get to sing the theme song, uh. which is a real bummer. But next time let's talk about our production methods. So Sean. Let's talk about some of the collaborators. Let's just very quickly yeah. run down some folks who came back so, as, uh, on these films or are an important part of yeah. these films, if you'd like. Doesn't have to go into a ton nope. of detail necessarily. Just give us some names, yep. bruh. Uh, some of the names we're going to be hearing. In our, I, I've taken it, you know, I'm okay with bro. I'm okay with bruh. That's, I'm okay with bra. Well, you're kind of a film bro, but not a, not a bad one. <sighs> like that one, that's on a negative connotation, you know? We're kind of film bros. But not the annoying I type. I, I don't know how to. I don't know how to accept that. I don't oh, think no, I could accept that. Canceled. Fuck. All right, you're a. All right, all right. Let me take it back. <clears throat> you're a cinema bro. Oh man. All right. Yeah. Let's roll it's with it. Better being like a TV bro. Yeah. No, that's true. That's true. But what do you want to be? What kind of bro do you want to be? I want to be any bro because bro has like the it's a attitude connotation. But I'm okay with calling oh, people true. bro. But like I meant it more like, hey bro, oh, hey bro. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. That but way, I didn't really. Film bro mean. is a type. That's like a, a certain kind of person that like sort of sucks. Shtick. Yeah. Not always. Not always. I know some good film bros. Some of my best friends are film That's bros. That's true. That's true. Uh, all right, let's talk these. All names. right. So some of the names you're going to be hearing today are um, Nestor Almendros and Sophie Mantegno. Uh, these were the two cinematographers that worked um, on the three movies we'll be talking about. Um, some actors that'll come up in conversation quite a bit are Marie Riviere and Fabrice Woo! Luciani. Um, and uh, the producers of these films are Georges de Beauregard and uh, then working with um, Barbette Schroeder. Um, Barbette Schroeder worked with Margaret Menegos on Percival. Margaret Menegos worked on The Green Ray with Francois Echegaray. Um it's a really cool kind of handoff of producers from these movies over here. There's one person from the previous movie that's always producing the next movie. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah. I don't think I made that connection. Yeah, cool little pattern. You know, probably just a good moment to pause and say that, like, this podcast is about Eric Romare, but I think too often movies are yeah. talked about, uh, these things are talked about in a vacuum. I don't know if you're watching uh, Andor on, uh, this is kind of a, you know, by the time this comes out, it'll be over. But I, th- I Andor has been, I think, very successful as a show. And all the credit goes to Tony Gilroy often, who's a genius. Mm-hmm. But so far of the episodes I've seen, he hasn't written or directed a single episode. He's the showrunner. Now, obviously, he's played a major, I mean, he's the showrunner, which, by the way, is not really a, an official title, right? So he produces the mm-hmm. show, 
but he's the showrunner. And it is somewhat of an auteur project in a way, but it's totally helped along by directors, writers. Yeah. The production design is unfucking believable. And the production designer on that show was in the room. Yeah. While they were writing That's the show. cool. That's really Which cool. is so cool. Because I'm a theater guy. I come from the idea that like you sit around a table yeah. and then you and you figure out a text. Um, though that the table work thing is becoming less of a of a thing yeah. these days. A lot less directors are doing table work. Probably because of the amount of time they have to rehearse mm -hmm. plays. But really, it, I think the most interesting films are collaborative. The filmmaking process is deeply, deeply, deeply collaborative. Yeah. And, uh, collaborative. and I don't think there's La Collection News is the movie that it is without... Yester yeah. Almendros, yeah. who we we sort of under talked about, yeah. in our episode just, on the show, which is a little surprising, but whatever. It is really interesting, you know. I uh, for those of you that have listened to our La Collection News episode, um, we actually focused a lot on sound, which uh, I'm I'm glad we did because. Nestor Almendros is um, what so many folks know about La Collectionus. And uh, right. we got to talk about um, the person who did sound on the movie, um, who is uh, son of a bitch. The person who did the sound on... It's okay. We can, I'll, I'll cut <laughs> yeah. this out. The person gotta who give, did Gotta the give a shout out. Is La Collectionus. You know, there's a... Um, What's her name? Charlotte Gainsbourg song called La Collection News. Was that um, after the movie? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's cool. It's Charlotte Gainsbourg. Yeah. Right. It has to be after the movie. But was, oh, okay. Who am I? Oh, I was thinking of Serge Gainsbourg. Oh, my God. We don't have yeah. the sound person in our notes for. Yeah. That's that's what for, I was like uh, looking back to. I was like, oh, that's that's bad. Is it? It's not Pascal Ribier. No, that would be too early, I think. La Collection Yeah, that's true. Sound. La Collection News. Um, let's see, let's see. Oh my God, nobody has the sound credit. Even, at, uh, are you looking on like uh, IMDb, right? I look, uh, I was looking on Wikipedia, yeah. where often these things are. I, uh, Ooh, Disenchanted. Let me look on Letterboxd. Does IMDb not have it? Um, I didn't <sighs> check IMDb yet. Fucking, fucking. Oh, 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 uh, no sound credit. Damn. That's wild. Yeah. We'd have to, like, go to the movie credits to, like, figure this out. Wait. Unless. Oh, wait, wait. Do I have uh, screenshots? La Collection News. Oh, I don't have the screenshots of it. Damn. All right. Well, yeah. we're not going to. We can't. Yeah. You know, let's right. just. Um, let's. Uh... Hang on. Of course, I say that and then I'm like. We could always add in like a quick little edit of just like, you know, interrupting that conversation with like the sound person on. Uh, All the sound was post-synchronized? No. Yeah. Oh, shit. I don't think we... Wait. Almendros also noted that they used a nosy eclair 35mm camera and all the film sound was post-synchronized. Oh, shit. Didn't we talk about it in terms of, like, direct sound? Well, we didn't really say... We just talked about, like, the, the birds. And then we talked about, like, the direct sound and the post-dub. Yeah, it could be about my, my, my night at mods. It can't have been. Yeah, it really doesn't have that, that But this quality. is an article from Senses of Cinema. Hmm, I don't... I would need to see their... Their research. Well, yeah. <laughs> then again, though, it does say, Stromer and Schroeder produced La Canouche in the same way they yeah. had their first two movies. They scraped together just enough money. With five films stuck in the library, they tried to raise money for post-production. It remained as a black and white silent work print for a year. Oh, shit. This showed this rough cut to De Beauregard, and he paid for the color printing and the sound recording. Whoa. All right. So, we just learned something something new. That We like, had to just... We, yeah. Huh. Wow. 
Yeah, I just okay. So this is what it says over here. Uh, I just found the thing in Nestor Almendros's book. Um, I thought the Eclair, the camera that they used, a portable thirty-five, um, without a blimp, was not much heavier than a noiseless sixteen. And if we were going to dub, there was no use to uh, use the uh, sixteen millimeter camera. Yeah, so the whole movie was dubbed. So, we'll, <laughs> all right. So we'll have to do a little uh, a little correction. Why don't we just get right into yeah. it here and talk? Yeah, about yeah. It. All right, all right. I'm coming, cut, cutting back in. Okay, guys. So here's we just cut a whole bunch of stuff out that we cut out because it was mostly Sean and I being like tap 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 tap. What? Yeah. Um, and it was in trying to find the name of the person who recorded sound. Maybe nobody recorded sound on La Collection News. We discovered, to our shock, that the whole that movie that the film is post sync. Now, Sean, will you explain what that means? So the post sync means uh, the film was recorded without sound, uh, and after the movie is done being filmed, they go into the uh, recording studio and they uh, do ADR, where you um, record your dialogue or replace dialogue. Um, in this case, completely dub your dialogue to your performance after the fact. Which means that none of the sound that you hear in the movie was present at the time of filming, which I am astonished by because I was yeah. so convinced by the recording that this was uh, not yeah. direct sound. So, so it's kind of Kind of crazy. And it's not that um, the reason... Liam and I are sort of blown away by this is not that this was an, an uncommon practice. You know, people were post-dubbing films still in the 1960s, not quite as much. Uh, but Bellatar still yeah, did Bellatar it well, still, well into the yeah. 2000s. And Be Bellatar is doing because, it as like an artistic choice, but back then as well, um, a lot of folks were... There was a time when you had to post-dub as a practical consideration because the cameras were just too loud um IMAX that. cameras yeah. are very very loud for example they have to be very 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 far away yeah. from the action if you want and use very long lenses yeah. if you want to record and then we talked about that with Nolan right. how Nolan is a uses, shoots a lot of IMAX so, and yet his films are 95% natural sound location sound, sound. natural sound uh, yeah, which is impressive sound. but he has the money to yeah. do it um so it's but this is crazy in the context of Romare because you know so much of his uh, later aesthetic principle and I mean this is talking about his production methods really ties into direct sound. So recording on location. And this is a movie that really feels natural. And this is a movie where you don't feel any kind of like post-dub quality, even to the quality of the audio. Um, because Liam, you... No, it's very impressive. It's really impressive. And what threw us off is, Liam, you talked about in our episode on Law Collection News recording the sound of the birds that were the true birds of that location. And because so many of his other movies related with direct sound, I just felt like, okay, that is why, um, you know, it has that quality. But I mean, I'm quite sure maybe he went to actually record that and dub that in. But um, it's interesting. Well, it's equally, it's also really impressive because these actors are not professional actors, yeah. right? And dubbing, you know, I uh, when I was in film school, I had a sound design um, professor who had done a ton of ADR, looping, mm -hmm. meaning getting actors back into a room to re-record their dialogue for whatever reason. And um, he, you know, without naming names, he like kind of rattled off a list of famous person and be like, famous person number one, they're incredible at ADR. Famous person number two, they're not good at ADR. We had to go back and use the original lines because they were so mm -hmm. bad at ADR, right? So the fact that he got these non-actors to do it successfully is impressive. So uh, valuable lesson learned. It's funny in the research, you know, re I, this never came up. It only came up reading a few notes that we were looking at when we came online. So, uh, I mean, incre incredible. And also I, I have a big sort of, I've been thinking a lot about my theory about Romare's production mm -hmm. philosophy yeah. and, and what it actually, its goals are. And, and this, ugh, this challenges it, but also enhances it. Anyway, let's, let's, um, Let's keep going. Let's talk about the cinematography uh, a little bit. Let's talk. We, let's stay on Collection News for a minute and talk a little bit about Nestor Almendros's. Let's talk about like, Collection News and Percival. Yeah. Let's go. Let's go. So uh, Nestor Almendros was the cinematographer of both of these movies and one of his closest collaborators during this period of time. You know, he would then work on like the rest of the moral tales um, and a fair amount of other um, Romare's movies. Um, and I think one of the central tenets of the working production methods. I think Romare influenced Nestor Almendros's production methods and philosophy, and Nestor Almendros 
um, influenced Romare's approach, which is this idea of function over aesthetic. Um, Hell in, yeah. Uh, man with a... Or function creates or the function also. creates the, the right the function creates the aesthetic. I mean, really, the, ultimately, function creates right. aesthetic is nothing without execution, right? right. right? Function function first, yeah, and, right. and never first. aesthetic first. Um, in his book, Man with a Camera, he says, "I believe that what is functional is beautiful, and that functional light is a beautiful light." And so that's kind of like this framing idea of how. Um, Nestor Almendros approaches lighting. So this is uh, Romare's first movie in color. Every movie had done before this had been in black and white. With black and white, the so that includes Sign of Leon, Sign of Leo, right? Is that what it's Sign of Leo? Thank you. Uh, That includes Sign of Leo. That includes, excuse me, Uh, uh, Suzanne's career. uh, Yeah, the short Mm -hmm. films, right? And also the the feature. Uh, Is Suzanne's career a feature? Uh, it's a, it's like a 50 minute minute film, right? So it's like a short feature, mid-length, mid-length, the ever vanishing mid-length, which I feel like should come back. I'd love to make a mid-length film. Um, so this is the first one in color. Yeah. First one in color. Um, uh, a lot of natural light. Often things are backlit, they're dark, and they, most interestingly, they use a lot of mirrors to bounce light rather than bring in a bunch of big lights to do the work. It's really lit quite naturally, right? It has a... That a documentary approach to lighting and that it uses what is available without bringing in a ton of lights. Now, that's also a weird thing to say because documentaries are lit. Right. It's not like a documentary. There's no lights yeah. in a documentary. I mean, documentaries are as produced as fiction. Yeah. As fi- fiction features. We, we, we all too often throw the word documentary around, documentary around to mean real. Yeah. And uh, documentaries are, are often just as manufactured. Yeah. And this is just as manufactured, but... I think it's aiming for a kind of um, realness yes. that we can talk more for about. For sure. Percival's well, the exact opposite. Well, I, uh, you know, I want to speak on that point about the, um, about natural, right? Like, uh, this is a podcast, or this episode being about the production methods. Um, it's, I, I'm always thinking of like, what are the sort of like, what can we take away in terms of that? And people talk about natural light all the time. This is something that like, especially a lot of young filmmakers will say like, oh, I want to do this with natural light. But people don't often consider what that really entails. And that doesn't mean just like you show up to a place and like you um, you just work with whatever conditions are there. And what they were able to do is like really focus on like time of day. You know, they're always considering their lighting and uh, and where it's sort of coming from. And the idea that like natural light is not just like a, practical choice but it is uh an aesthetic choice and so like if you're trying to capture what's natural you know how does that extend and uh it's i think really cool and unique that to use these mirrors because you could bring in additional lamps and i know there wasn't really the budget for it but the idea of using mirrors is really to extend what is natural naturally do you know what i mean right and i think that this also speaks to one of the quotes that you highlighted in your post when we started this season which is eric romare saying my films are made using meteorology yeah if i didn't check the weather forecast every day i couldn't make my films because they are filmed according to what the weather is doing my films are slaves to the weather um so he's really if it's a cloudy day it's a cloudy day in the scene if it can't be a cloudy day if that doesn't match something else though i don't think he's terribly concerned with matching necessarily i think he's concerned with what's Mm -hmm. real um, there's this great interview. Have you ever seen the film Ronin? Uh, that's Robert De Niro. Robert De Niro. No, I've never seen it. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Oh, it's such a good who, movie. Who yeah. so uh, late, directed it? Late, late period Frankenheimer movie. One of the last movies yeah. he directed. I think it's a total yeah, masterpiece, and it's incredible. And one of the things that's really there's a sequence early on where they go to buy some guns on the French on the river in in Paris, and uh, it rained the night they started shooting. And so as a result, every day Frankenheimer had someone come in with a hose and wet it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and he just said, you know what? Why run away from this, right? right? Like it is what it yeah. is. Um, and, you know, it's, 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 accepting, it's accepting the reality. And I think that's part of production. Again, functional, not yeah. aesthetic. Now, but then the uh, it becomes an aesthetic where it's like then afterwards when it's not raining, you got to wet down the streets and everything. Yeah. Totally. But, but also... They're leaning they leaning lean into, into that yeah. as reality, I think, is is the wise production decision. Yeah. You know, I think I think the best directors are also producers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
First of all, is the exact opposite of La Collection News. It's a studio movie, and that creates limitations. You 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 can do anything, but you have to keep it simple, and you know that you're really you have to light everything right and. I would say that in a weird way, Percival is kind of a documentary of a text. Yeah. It is a, it is not a, a particularly cinematic movie in that it, it, it relies on visual storytelling, though it's quite visual, but it relies on the language. It's a presentation of a language, a presentation of a, of a French poem, a very old French poem. And so as a result, it's flat. It's diffused, meaning the light is spread out and it's ambient. You feel like you're in a warehouse as opposed to they're relighting every shot. Right. And in fact, it's presented in a very presentational style. The continuity, and that this a little bit speaks to the continuity of the movie to me, in that because he's chosen to largely replicate almost entire an entire poem, the whole movie is a continuity film. It's very, and what I mean is that like, largely you'll have a scene and then you'll see uh, I forgot his name. Percival ride to another castle, yeah. and then a whole scene, and it's played out in in, a, in real time, in durational yeah. time. And as a result, the lighting kind of can't be too fancy because what you're actually what you're trying to do is achieve a sense of unity, mm -hmm. like an Aristotelian sense of place and time, yeah. and whatever the other thing is that he describes in the poem. Yeah. There's really there's no day or no read. night or anything like that in the movie. It just looks yeah, yeah. existent. Yeah, I'm sorry I interrupted no, no, no. you, but continue what you were saying. Oh, what a dick. <laughs> no, for sure, man. Like it's uh, uh, in a studio that what most directors would do, and Nestor Almendros talks a little bit about this as well. Is um, right before this, he worked on the uh, Francois Truffaut movie, or actually Romare had talked about this, and um, that one is all in a studio. Um, I can't remember which one it is. I think it was the story of Adele H. And uh, that was all in a studio with like chiaroscuro lighting, like really, really. Um, super super lit like almost like like a like a film noir and Nestor Almendros had spoken about lighting in that way and how it sort of turns actors into robots and so in a studio where you can control every single mm. aspect you know it, it, it totally depends on the kind of movie you're making of course but um you know you could have this like sort of amazing shot with the perfect backlight where like they need to be in the exact right position and it'll look absolutely incredible um and that's how a lot of folks can use the studio and do use the studio. Romare does something totally different, which is the studio is just the warehouse for this set to be created. The <laughs> right, it's a it's, it's a playhouse. It, yeah, it's it's like Dogville. Right. It's like it's Dogville. like Dogville for sure. It's much more like which is Dogville. one of my yeah. favorite movies of all time. I think it's just an astonishing uh, masterpiece yeah. of, of uh, painful cinema. Yeah. If you've never seen it, watch them together. That, go, go have a terrible night. <laughs> go have a terrible seven-hour uh, night. A, that is a, a good double feature pairing. That would be a cool episode to do in if, context in the future. If and only if you hate yourself. <laughs> um, I think we might hate ourselves enough for that to be a double feature episode at one point. Let's talk about Dogville and Percival. Dedicate an episode to that in relation to each other. I quit the podcast? <laughs> I quit the podcast. The Green Ray is the exact opposite. It's entirely natural, practic light, practic practical light, no mirrors, no lamps. Uh, the cinematographer would make framing choices during a take, when to pan, where to zoom. Romero kind of like was hands off with this. And I... He basically, this is quote, would you like to share the quote from Eric Romare about yeah, this? Yeah, he said um, the main thing to do is like you need to just agree on some general principles, um, which is kind of speaks to this idea of like rules, this idea of like what is the, the baseline visual language or the way we'd approach, you know, shooting a scene. Um because then it really allows for a lot of choice with the collaborator. This is a movie where he needed to really rely on his collaborators because it's the smallest crew he worked with. Um, he, How many people? Like three? Um, I think around five people. So like, yeah. Jesus. That's the way to make a movie, yeah. though. Increasingly, I'm convinced yeah. that that... A particular type of right. movie, of course. But like, if I were to make a movie right now, it would be like yeah. that. If By you're the an way, indie filmmaker, like, this is a way to make your movie in a way that could really make sense. Speaking of Dogville, these agreement on principles and ideas. One of the things that I learned loving film, and you know, I was like a lot of people, a huge Lars von Trier fan mm -hmm. at a at a young age because he was sort of the the art film guy of the late '90s, early 2000s. Um, and 
he's a big fan of of what he would call obstructions mm-hmm. or uh, things that you have to work around. You know, in Dogville, it's shooting in a studio. It's having all the actors in the frame all the time, right? There's really clear structural mm-hmm. delineations in his movies. Or in the case of something like... Um, uh, breaking the waves, which is you know made under the, somewhat under the dogma mm-hmm. banner, or the dog dogma ninety five, right. which is the movement he created with Thomas Vinterberg and other Danish collaborators, where they said like only direct sound. It's a lot, yeah. you know. Uh, everything Natural has to be light on set. Or practical no, lights. No like plot elements that like no guns. Mm-hmm. No one can get shot. And he only made one film this way, The Idiots, right. which is a fucking masterpiece. Um, have you seen? No, the I got to see The Idiots still. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's hard. It's a hard movie to get. I do like. No one can see this. How my glasses are slipping down <laughs> my face more as I talk and making me more more pretentious. But there's a there's a commonality between Dogma '95. Yeah. And sort of some of the general principles that Eric Romare. Um, yeah. And it's. It all kind of stems from this idea to remove falsity, you know, to kind of get to the heart of like what's most important in a story. And um, it's these characters and it's not this emphasis on aesthetic. Um, It's the characters and the story that's being told and trying to tell that in a way that feels honest. I think very quickly, let's talk about sound, which is, uh, you know, La Collection News clearly uh, is post-dubbed, which we've discovered, which is mind-blowing. Uh, don't don't come at us. But there are some choices, like recording the actual birds that live in the location for La Collection News that that um, that he does. Percival is all recorded on set, and the music is recorded on set. It's not dubbed in post. You know, you got those, those lutes and that uh, increasingly repetitive score mm-hmm. coming back time and time again. And I think any music in Green Ray is just kind of like, Backgrounds, you know, and, oh. and kind of like it's like they're walking, except for the um, what's the music? Oh. In, uh, I'm trying to remember. So the the, the music ahead. in Green Ray is um is a fugue, or uh, that's that's what it was. It's meant it's meant to be. Uh-huh. Um, uh, written by Romare. Romare not really having musical knowledge. The story of how he came up with the um, uh, the score is really interesting. So he just wrote down the words Bach. B-A-C-H, because that was the sort of like influence or the idea that he's like, okay, something like Bach, but not being a musician, he just translated those letters to notes. So B is a B, A is an A, C is a C. There is no note that's called H. So he just... I love a so, good H major. So he, I think he just made that one like B flat or something like that. H major, the saddest <laughs> chord. And, uh, and that's how he wrote the score, which is so unique um but it is a sort of musical theme and he uses music like a chorus so that's how music is used in percival um la collection news has no music from or there is or right. very very little because well, there's a there's credit a score but it's it's yeah it's an interesting thing i want to just very quickly talk about something i noticed watching greenway yeah. this time which is um how uh how every conversation is recorded with a boom mic and it's improvised, and you they're, like they they did it in such natural settings that you can hear other conversations going on that kind of compete with the dialogue in the movie. It's almost like they used a car like um um omnidirectional. I don't think they no. used an omnidirectional, yeah. but they used a microphone that was close enough that uh, you're kind of picking up other conversations. And like candidly, candidly, what the hell am I in a Zoom meeting? <laughs> I am in a Zoom meeting, but honestly, it's kind of annoying. It's kind of annoying when the when it's like it kind of bucks against the way that I've learned about how to record right. sound, which is pristine and clean always, yeah. right? Um, which is not reality. I mean, like you and I record in different rooms across right. the country with different acoustics and different things. And and like you know, part of my the way I post edit this is I don't trying to run away from yeah. that. Like I just kind of, and increasingly I'm like, let's be Romarian and leave in the key taps. Yeah. And shit, yeah. Right. But, um, he, he doesn't shy away from ha- hearing people talk in the yeah. background. It's kind of wild. I mean, there's so, just like the idea of choice and sound. And we don't often think enough about the choices that are available to us in sound. And these are artistic choices. These are aesthetic choices, as well as production choices. And so often sound is sort of reduced to just a production concern, when really it's like a creative element uh, you have at your disposal um, that ties into specific production needs. Well, I also think too, there is real reason for thinking a sound is an afterthought in terms of its aesthetic, because it's hard to think about sound on set mm-hmm. when you're thinking about image. But, but I think Romare has freed himself yeah. of the demand or freed himself, I should say of the demands that would 
of matching an aesthetic of a matching an industrialized aesthetic. Right. Like it's very a clear choice in his career. Like I want to be an amateur. Yeah. And part of that amateur is, I think, is it, it leaves you. We're we're so obsessed with uh, some kind of professionalism, professional success, mm -hmm. and professionalism that we like lose. You know, we're about to talk about performance, and and I think this. <laughs> some part of me wonders if if. The, the character of Percival, especially at the beginning of the film, is a representation of Eric Romare on set. Because Fabrice Lucini spends most of the first mm -hmm. half of the film, and I think that this movie is about and the, the end in some ways of idealism, especially for the Percival yeah. character. He starts the movie like wide-eyed, staring off into the distance uh, because he sees knights, mm -hmm. he sees these people that he aspires to be, and then he becomes one of those things and he sort of loses himself in that, yeah. right? Um I think almost in some way Romare's production style, uh, which is so admirable, is to look at things wide-eyed and go like, what is happening and what am I seeing? Yeah, um, that's that's really awesome. And I think you that's absolutely... You're awesome. That's absolutely like a quality... Monster truck <laughs> monster motherfucker. Truck. I, feel, I don't think I'm monster truck motherfucker anymore. I got to get back in that headspace. No, you're back I'm to back Sean. I'm back to Sean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, Hey, we love Sean. We love Sean. We I sh should love I just be Sean. myself? I'll be myself. I'll be myself. Oh, yeah. cute. Um, okay. So let's talk about, give us a rundown of the naturalism and the acting and the performances in uh, the films. Um, oh, wait, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the sort of this quality of wide-eyedness, right? You know, in terms of Eric Romare, he's talked about the characters that he's drawn to. And I think this is what makes me look at La Collection Noose not in the same way as some of these like later movies is that um, he talks about like liking these characters that have like a naivete. And I think there's so much of like Marie Riviere's character in Romare and Romare and Marie Riviere's character in The Green Ray. Um, and same thing with Percival. And it's these people that look at life a little bit poetically. Uh, it's these people. Yes. Yeah. And I think he, uh, it's a really amazing thing to see that sort of perspective because there is so much cynicism that we see in movies, and I think something that's well, Blanche as well, yeah, and, and Blanche girlfriends is, and boyfriends, and, and uh, Raynette in um, Adventures of Raynette and Mirabelle, um, and Francois mm. in Aviator's Wife. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a good thing to see in movies, and I think it's something that we see less and less of every day because I think so much of like even the way the characters people tend to be drawn to, like people like characters that make good decisions, people like characters that are are logical or have a certain kind of like common sense like a, a traditional common sense about well, i think it's also fair to push back on what you're saying though and say that also we have been obsessed with in the last decade thanks to things like Mad Men mm -hmm. and breaking bad with the anti-hero right yes which these characters are not no. they are they are not the villains yeah. even though they're the heroes they are not the heroes they are regular people and that's not to say that i don't think Don Draper in Mad Men is a well-drawn character. It's just that he is an anti-hero, right. right? He's complicated, but he leans towards a darkness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think Romare's films are a little bit about people navigating that darkness. Now, La Collection News is interesting because the two main characters are douchebags. <laughs> yeah, yep. <laughs> um, and we, as we said in the earlier one, the literary, the voiceover is in contrast with the image, right? The behavior of the main character the voiceover tries, in a way, maybe, to ask us to sympathize and understand the way he thinks, right? But what the way he behaves in the film is the opposite of that. And we should say that, like, it's interesting to think about the voiceover, which, of course, by the way, was was recorded after the film, right? But the the conversations in this film were based on recorded conversations with the actors and rehearsed uh, time and time again. And I, I think that's an interesting approach when it comes to non-actors because they know exactly what they're going to say. Yeah, and, and they've um, said and it before. They've, they've, pra they've rehearsed yeah. it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a what a cool way to think of, like, capturing naturalism is this is the conversation. It's literally, like, recorded, um, translated into dialogue. It's, like, true words that have been said before. Um, there's a lot... Which... Uh, there's oh, a lot ahead. with I'm Romero, so of, like, how he's worked with non-professional actors that, like, gives us a number of different strategies of uh, things to think about when we're um, working with folks that might not have um, been trained in, in and performance. And, by the way, there's a... Something similar to that in the uh, performances in uh, the... Uh, ooh, the garbage truck is coming by. Can you guys hear that? I hear nothing. 
That's that good direct sound. You're getting mm. that on the recording. Percival is a poem. He's taking a poem. The language in the film is the language of the poem. There's no allusions towards naturalism. There's a naturalism in La Collection News and having the actors rehearse the lines, say the lines, be human beings, be the human beings that they actually already are. I struggle a lot with isms. I was thinking about this at 3 a.m. this morning when I couldn't sleep. I struggle a lot with the difference between realism and mm -hmm. naturalism and, and these things. I think we all do. I think that that's yeah. fair. But there's an, if I interpret naturalism correctly, there's a naturalism to behaving like yourself in a movie. There is nothing natural about, I'm now going to interpret a poem. I'm going to give it as authentic mm -hmm. an expression as possible to the, exp to the intentions of the poet. And I'm not going to interpret it from a modern viewpoint. I am, in fact, going to leave in, lean in, as Romare does, to the naivete of the, of the original age and present that. It's like the, the cognitive dissonance between medieval language as poetry and 1978 when this film is made leans into that naivete we're watching the film as an audience and we're like what yeah and what is this he's creating a space that doesn't exist in modern yeah, times yeah and and uh when we say naivete we don't mean it in like a condescending way we're meaning it in the sort of way romare uses naivete which is sort of like well, this, this kind of uh innocence can i can i share a quote with you from yeah. eric romare I like ridiculous characters who make us laugh. All my characters have this ridiculous aspect. I want them to be like that. And they all contain a kind of truth. So we're, you know, uh, I'm curious about the, what that actually means in terms of like, like how that well translated that is, because I view his characters as a little bit, um, kind of like a little clueless in a way, not in a bad mm -hmm. way. Right. Like I think he, he wants, he kind of wants to get at the idea of, uh, of pe real people mm -hmm. and all their contradictions and how they exist. And also I think he's interested in naive people and, uh, and the fact that or, yeah. the actors in this film are awkward because they're, they're narrating their own actions in the third person. Yeah. Uh, Didn't you say Fabrice Luciani was embarrassed <laughs> to do this or something? Yeah. So, um, in the film, uh, they, uh, say what they're doing um as like as it's written in the in the poem so a line like make of me a knight says he um was really difficult for uh for Can you imagine? Yeah. yeah so he talks yeah. about like how he tries to like sort of swallow the words or alter his voice or try to do something to sort of separate make that me a knight, says he. Yeah. <laughs> or or right? or, or, or like with that. the says he part right that needed to feel like it was being so maybe it was like make of me a knight says he, right? Like to do something that makes it seem like there's an, a narrational quality, but Romare told him to say it all in one line. Make of me a knight, says he, all in the same tone and exactly as if the character were just speaking every word. Well, exactly as Fabrice Lucini would speak it, not even as the character, because, mm -hmm. you know, depending on whose methods of acting right. you believe, there is no character. Right. There are only words on a page. Yeah. You know, that's a David Mamet thing. Ugh. But also folks like Sanford Meisner, you know, modern acting teaching, uh, which there's a wonderful book called The Method by uh, Isaac Butler, who gets in kind of the history of acting in this country as it, as it evolves from Russia. But there's a modern day thinking, especially when it comes to avant-garde work, yeah. that like you're not acting. Right. You're just you're just doing actions and, and you're not a character right. or, or, you yeah. know. Uh, it's a mystery, right? Mm -hmm. But part yeah. of it is the the pushback against like I'm playing a boxer, so I'm gonna lose. I'm gonna gain fifty five <sighs> right. pounds of muscle, yeah. right, or whatever the case is. And and we're obsessed with that stuff. But like, he's just doing his thing, right? He's just saying the lines as he would say. It's a little bit like if I did a lot of Shakespeare in college, right? And I think every time a young actor is like, "All right, you're gonna play Hamlet," I joke about it, but it's like, "All right, I'm gonna do Hamlet." <clears throat> To be or not to be, whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows. And it was, and like every good director will be like, "What yeah. are you doing?" And they're like, "No, I'm doing Hamlet, mm -hmm, yeah. right?" Like, no. "Nay, mother, I know not scenes." Yeah. And it's like, it's like, like no, that's not a, that's also, not Hamlet. That's a facsimile of uh, an, a naive impression of what that could be based yeah, on a certain it was similar to be if you tried to do it with a Danish accent, right. right? There's just because he's the prince of Denmark, right? Like. I actually think with Shakespeare, uh, the, the, the technique is always like, bring it closer to yourself, mm -hmm. right? Because that's, that's what you should do, right? And so to be or not to be, what, you know, uh, that is the question, whatever, uh, has to be the actor talking about their own uh, life or mortality or death or, you know, suicidal ideation, right? Like, I think actually what Romare was doing was saying, bring it closer to yourself, as opposed, even though you're doing this, uh, it creates an obstacle uh, and, uh, um, 
a dilemma, you know, uh, and it's it's a very interesting actor training. Yeah, I could talk about forever. But there's also these very, let's say, realistic uh, or choices that he made for fidelity. So, do you want to talk about the uh, the coats of of armor, the coats of I guess the mail as they they would be called? Yeah. Um, because I think they they they're wearing real armor. Yeah, it's it's interesting like what's what's gets selected to be completely authentic. Like he wasn't trying to recreate like medieval location, but the costumes were all made authentically. So all that like chainmail stuff, um the um uh the headgear, everything like that was like true to the weight um and construction of that chainmail to the point where um it was really fucking heavy. So it forced the actors and the stuntmen um, to invent different ways of moving, which then inspires all the gestures that we see in the movie, and particularly for the riding of the horses, battle scenes, and things like that. The modern equivalent, I, and I think a really strong example, is the fact that the actors in Saving Private Ryan underwent uh, soldier training for like six weeks before they shot the D-Day invasion stuff, yeah. right? And I think, or the whole movie, really. And like, it's interesting that there's this thing with with good directors i would you know argue that eric romero is a good director and steven spielberg is also a very very good director mm -hmm. he's not having them like necessarily maybe they did this but he's not like write me your childhood write me an right. essay about your childhood yeah. playing you know uh private ryan he's like let's go do and let's go do six months uh six weeks of of soldier training so you yeah. know how to move in the right. clothes and you know how to like you know pour yeah. the coffee because as an like, actor you, know, manage, you are who you manage are a mobile yeah. yeah exactly and you know interestingly with that movie i don't know if you know this uh you've seen yeah. that film right it's yeah, so good it's matt damon wasn't didn't participate in the soldier training because he was just sort of saved at the end right like so yeah like, but it would make sense that he would be but i think the reason spielberg didn't bring him along is he was like i yeah hear that plane that plane good direct sound. all that stuff so we're not cutting in the uh direct sound. uh um the reason he didn't bring him along i think is because the actors could be like you fucking dick you didn't do this six weeks of training like it would create the hostility that needs to be directed towards him right in the movie, right? So he creates the circumstances for the actors to really yeah. feel something, but he's not like necessarily having them uh, write like a long diatribe. Right, right, it's, totally. It's not intellectual, you know they, it's you know physical. It you feel it in the body. Yeah, it's, it, and by yeah. feeling it in the body, it creates the intellectual feeling, right? right? Yeah. Which is a, a big acting training as well. There's certain acting trainings that are like all body focused, yeah. like viewpoints or Suzuki with Ann Bogart and the city company. It's all about feeling it in the body. Yeah. So tying that to like what you had said earlier, which was, I think you said was the mammoth quote, you know, there is no character. There's just words on the page, but character comes from just who you are and then the conditions, right? So like having this sort yes. of these conditions that change your physicality or where you understand physicality combines with words and combines with just your general essence. And that's ultimately what a character is, you know, it, and it could be as, you know, one can intellectualize it however much they want. Like you're saying, you know, like, people that are like oh write this essay or like oh this character like this is where they come from but and look there's no bad approach no, it's all about results sure, totally. right and the only bad approach is the shitty mean director approach like or the uh, not agreed upon uh way of treating an actor by a director right if if uh, you know like the stories of certain directors slapping actors yeah. before they 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 do a take now that seems or like you know kubrick apparently psychologically torturing shelly duvall on the set of the shining like if if that stuff's not agreed upon, then it's a real problem, right? It's all about like giving the actor the space and, and the technique and the way they want to do something, right? And it actually seems like Romare really respected the shit out of his yeah. actors and didn't try this like hodgepodge auteur bullshit mm -hmm. uh, thing that a lot of some directors try. To come back to your point of essence, and I think this is a great way to move into the Green Ray. I think the and I I think Black Collection News, Green Ray, and Percival all have the same goal, which is I think the philosophy of Romero's approach. And in the case of the Green Ray, the movie is the essence of Marie Riviere. Yeah. He wants he's like I love this yeah. actress. I want this film to create a be her film. It's like in a way, it's like um, it's almost like she's a co-director. I mean, she's a co-writer yeah. on the movie, right? But uh, she's so intrinsic to the film that it's almost like a coke it's like a collaboration we mentioned bellatar earlier and he doesn't take a film by credit he and his department heads all get a film by whoa credit that's really together. cool and i need to see i need yeah. to watch bellatar he's come up at, have you not watched any I, bellatar i haven't seen any bellatar yet 
I know. You haven't seen any Bellatar? We all have our shameful gaps. We do. I haven't seen much. uh, Let me think. Who's a filmmaker who I've not seen any films by? Um, Edward Yang. Ah, yeah. So I've seen, yeah. Even uh, Wait, no. I might have seen, Brighter Summer Day is the very long film, right? Might have seen that one. But there's definitely, there's a whole, I mean, it's not that I'm like, how dare you? I'm just surprised. Because you seem to know a lot about him. I would start with um, Verkmeister Harmonies. Okay. Cool. I think that that's the I think that that's the encapsulation awesome. of Bellatar, and it's an absolute masterpiece. Um, in addition to the essence, costumes people are wearing uh, what they what they're wearing. Marie Riviere probably did a little thinking. She's wearing a lot of red in the film. Um, the film is inspired by the naturalism of TV interviews, which also my night conversations of my night at mods were. There are scenes that are um, just conversations that are derived from listening to people talk about philosophy. Um, but it's pretty natural. It's a pretty natural uh, uh, kind of conversation, uh, performance, I should say, not conversation. Yeah, with Marie Riviere, she really was like kind of, she she was creating this character. Um, and this movie really being improvised, you know, Romare says like not a single thing was written for this movie. You know, there are moments where they need to sort of capture certain things, but that means she's creating this character with every scene as they're shooting chronologically. And that tension is what, like you're not acting against a script. You're not necessarily even acting against other actors. You're acting against the idea of like, I am in performance mode right now and I have to accept it as it comes. There's a great quote, improv works the first time or it doesn't work at all, which is is Eric Romare, right? Have you read the, have you ever heard the great Ingmar Bergman? I've probably quoted this on the show before, the Ingmar Bergman thing, uh, where he's talking to the AFI students. No, wait, maybe. I have a recording of it. I have to, I'll, maybe I'll try to drop it in. But he's like, improvisation is very good. It's very good. But any improvisation based on an improvisation is always shit. It's always shit. And like, it's, it is, it's, it's that's, great. Because he's like, yeah. what are you pushing right. against? You know, right. like you can't. It's hard to change a story, you know? I've been on sets where I've, like, changed my approach mm-hmm. to how I'm shooting something, and it fucks it up. You, then you have mismatched yep. angles, you have all these other problems. Uh, and this movie, just the camera kind of rolls and lets it play out, and he stays out of the way. I think with uh, improvisation, you know, thinking of the the young film student, that's another thing, like Natural Light, where um, I come against this uh, often with students, where it's like, um, this reluctance to sometimes want to write dialogue and to really just jump into it. And you hear things that are like improvised and a lot of people want to approach improvisation just like, yeah. oh, well, like, we'll just improvise it. And, you know, you'll see a lot of like indies that are like, like improv, uh, improvised indies. And, you know, it's, it's like a little riffy sometimes. And I think some of the mumble course stuff, like it's, it's improvised in a way that like feels improvised oftentimes in the ways that I don't really love, which is a kind of rambling quality. Um, right. It's like they haven't made any they decisions. They haven't made any decisions, but it's like, you could still, t- it's like takes have been done. You know, like they're, they're doing like takes of it and stuff. And uh, I, I feel like over here, it's well, so central around a particular action and understanding that with improv, it's about capturing it that first time. And I think we got to understand that, like, if we want improvisation, what we want is that spontaneity. And after that first time, it doesn't really exist. Yep. And so you you need to achieve it in, in the yeah. moment. Um, you know, the granddad daddy of this podcast feed, and, and, in, and in a way, this podcast is the subject of the first season of Uber Busters, which was the previous iteration yeah. of this, mm-hmm. this, this show, is John Cassavetes, right? Like, uh, Probably the quintessential American filmmaker in many, many ways. I know that's like simplistic to say, but like in terms of where sim where movies have evolved yeah. to, he plays a major role uh, as kind of the enfant terrible, the the guy who's constantly going like, "What the fuck are you doing?" Yeah. Like, I would love to hear a John Cassavetes diatribe about about a, a superhero. Oh, oh my god! I think it would be it would be amazing yeah. um, because I think similar to. Romare, what John Cassavetes was always interested in was the the, the essence, yeah. the person, the soul, yeah. who they were, putting life on yeah. screen. The idea that like life is always beginning and always ending in the same moment, mm-hmm. and we are capturing reality. Yeah, and it's about emotion. These all both all their movies, Cassavetes movies and Romare movies, are really about emotional emotion and emotional life and internal life. I I go a step further, and you know I. I think Romare's 
spiritual beliefs, he was Catholic, his philosophical beliefs really are manifested in his filmmaking. I think with La Collection Noose on the one hand and The Green Ray on the other, he's constantly trying to achieve a like verisimilitude, a regality mm-hmm. to those films, right? And I think with Percival, he went, there's nothing real about this. Let's make the most artificial yeah. film we can in the hopes of getting back to the essence of real yeah. people. The tension between being saying romantic and saying poetry and holding your hands in a funny gesture, and then but then at the same time being like, speak it as though you're talking yourself. Mm-hmm. Would it says to me that this is a guy who's like existential beliefs, religious beliefs, his idea of probably which is intrinsic to the religion of grace and redemption, he's trying to present real people through the lens of a camera mm-hmm. and sound yeah. and is not all that interested in telling a story necessarily. Or though he tells amazing stories. Any of the, yeah. though he tells amazing stories. But it's not like, we, we throw the word story around and storytelling mm-hmm. so much now. But this is a guy who's like equally interested in like, vibes mm-hmm. the fee- the real feeling that people have and representing truth whatever that means on screen yeah. I, I i'm so like and that's that comes back to the core of his, his his ideas as an i think an early existentialist he was really an early existentialist and i don't think that ever left him yeah yeah and that's i'm sort of jumped ahead here no, that's my like, takeaway yeah from that's this, a real uh real good sort of summation of like you know thinking of the question what is romarian and ultimately it's about capturing like the essence the essence of particular yeah. things. Well, and he's not a guy whose film techniques are like, I like to shoot a ton of coverage and then edit it together. Yeah. He's outside of the industrialized history of cinema. Yeah. So that's the most pretentious fucking sentence I've ever said. But he's interested in representing, sculpting, and creating life yeah. on camera. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and how it can be really done simply, you know. And increasingly throughout his career, which I think a lot of directors do, Hong Sang-soo, who we've talked about a little bit, um, who's such a great, inspiring, inspiring, inspiring yeah. filmmaker. Uh, Romare and he are similar in that they, they not, not in terms of story, though you could draw that comparison. In fact, they're compared to equally. But I would say in production techniques, in that as they get further and further into their careers, I mean, Hong Sang-soo doesn't even write scripts anymore. He just picks shooting weeks. <laughs> That's... Because yeah. I'm going to shoot the movie. It's that's, unbelievable. That's I'm going to shoot a movie awesome. from September 15th to September 28th. Yeah. Wow. That's so cool. Uh, so I, 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 I don't know. It's it's just, it's incredibly, it's like, uh, Romare uh, speaks to me, uh, sorry if I feel like I'm going on a tangent, uh, like as a, as a great religious artist that I, that speaks to me because he's not prescribing a religious beliefs. He's not he's telling prescribing me to Catholic belief. or... Yeah. Right. But he's he's actually ascribing the the most beautiful th- things about um the potential of humanity and grace. Yeah. You know, there's a the two probably like really important pieces of art in my life are the book I and Thou by by Martin Buber, who is a Jewish existentialist who wrote about that there's two types of relations, the I it and the I thou relation. And the I it relation is like between us and mm-hmm. things. But of course, we can treat people in an I-it kind of relationship. The I-thou is the di- the relation between people that in which God exists. Mm-hmm. God exists. In that, in the, well, yeah. And the other one is the, the piece Spiegel and Spiegel by Arvo Peretz that was used in so many independent films in the 2000s. And, and they're both simple and they're about grace and they're about really simple ideas communicating, communicated in like extremely rigorous terms. Strong decision-making aesthetically mm-hmm. To achieve a grace. Yeah. yeah. Having an aesthetic or having a philosophy behind what you do is crucial to the way you approach all your work and all your art. And it's not about how you, it's not about like writing a 120 page screenplay yeah. or uh, uh, having the best looking images. Yeah. It's all about what do you believe. Yeah. And it's interesting that he didn't start making films until his late 30s. How old was he when he did La Collection News? Do you know? He was born in 1920. 1920, so then to 47. 40, 40, 40, no. Really? I think so, yeah. 
right? Uh, let me double check it. Ooh, I okay, when I type Eric Romare into my browser, it always... Yeah, he, he, he was born in 1920, and so he was 66 when the Green Ray came. Son of a bitch. Uh, Lock Collection News, 1967. He was 47 yeah. years old. Pretty awesome. Pretty rad, dude. I feel like I, I sort of hijacked the conversation there about the... Uh, no, it was... About uh, the I, I love it. I think that's a, that's a good wrap-up point um, in the uh, sort of idea of just like what what makes films Romarian and what kind of connects a lot of these movies, you know, and this idea of like the essence. Let me ask you a question to wrap yeah. up because I got, a, I got philosophical and I want you to get functional. <laughs> what's a... What's a... From watching these films... These three films, Percival, Green Ray, Lock Collection News, not in that order. But what's a when you make your next film, what's a what's one sort of production technique you might take to it? So I've done uh, the Lock Collection News post dub um, approach uh -huh. uh, on my last short, uh, which was which was great. You know, I uh, was thinking actually a lot about Brisson uh, during that, and um, uh, I really think thinking about sound as a choice and like direct sound and what does it mean to record direct sound um, as a sort of like idea and a record of like the actual sound of a place. You know, it's like a documentary of your actors. Like, you know, that's what Jean-Luc Godard said about uh, of what movies are, right? A movie is a documentary of your actors. And so we're getting a documentary of your actors, a documentary of the location. It goes back to Romero's ideas of creating a fictionalized documentary. Um, and so that's definitely the sort of my big takeaway of how I want to approach productions and really just thinking of what's essential to just the creation of a work beyond what we are always told we need because that is how things have always been done. Yeah, it's really interesting. <clears throat> I'm not planning on making a movie anytime soon, but I'm developing a bunch of fictional podcasts. And um, to your point about direct sound, the struggle in creating fictional mm -hmm. podcasts, this is for work, is that um, it's very obvious when actors are act doing voice acting. Yeah, it always feels like voice acting. It's like, yeah, yeah. it's well, it's radio drama, yeah. right? They're kind of like, like if it's someone says, cringe, like, where did not you gonna go? Lie. It's never, no, <laughs> yeah. it is, it's very cringe. Yeah. It's very cringe. And uh, it, it works if the, if the, if, if, if what you're doing is broad or like largely comedic mm -hmm. or whatever the case might be. But like, if you're trying to do something with any degree of naturalism, uh, I think the only way to really achieve something is through uh, Im improv. Imp so a lot of these fictional things that I'm working on are improvised yeah. because I, I want I don't want script to get in the way. Can I pitch you an idea on a naturalistic, um, fictionalized podcast? It's about these two guys that love Eric <laughs> Romare, right? And they're also in love, but their love is forbidden. Because of distance. Oh, so sad. Um, yeah. Songs by Dashboard Confessional and The White Stripes. But, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, that, that would that would be the story. I was I was trying to figure out how to work that into this episode, and I'm glad you did. Raves everyone that's listened to it. Um, Give it to me. But, okay, so this is the idea. It's a Romarian fictionalized podcast. You go to a location where the characters would be. So these characters are in a cafe. You put the actors in this cafe. You put a tape recorder on the table or your voice memos and you record the sound of that conversation in that location so it's really true documentary sound from a particular space direct sound but it's all the scenes from like you know whatever this fictionalized story is so documentary approach to the recording of the sound in these locations f murray abraham voice i'm not hearing a lot of money in this. <laughs> remember from inside lewin davis remember that uh, no i think that's a great idea and in fact in fact purely John, artistic uh, reasons this this won't make there's any money a, there's a well did you have you ever listened to the podcast homecoming that came out oh a yeah ago? yeah that's a cool uh, cool podcast so that for at least the first season like when they were like they 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 recorded it in Brooklyn and they were like okay this place this one takes place in a park they went and recorded the actors in a park they didn't do it in a studio yeah. they actually took like David Schwimmer and Catherine Keener uh, and really had them on the phone also so like when they're they're never in person in that film or I think it was actually Oscar Isaac and her but whatever like they really went out of their That's way cool. to yeah. make it real yeah. because I think they knew like there's nothing more sterile than a sound studio yeah. And I think it, it doesn't necessarily, you have to be a really incredible actor to like be behave uh, 
real what's the what's the what's the definition of acting that I got in acting school to behave truthfully in, in imaginary circumstances right. to act like that in a sound studio where there's like a technician who's like sitting there is like I make $350 an hour right, or right. whatever like to do it's just not you know but I think that that approach is uh really bold and also um it's, it happens. Edward Burns recorded dialogue for some of his movies with the actors with their iPhones upside down That's in their pockets, cool. recording voice memo. That's cool. Yeah, guys, guys, you know he's he does his thing. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot to be learned here. Thanks so much for listening to season two of Romercast, the podcast about Eric Romare, his films, his working methods, and anything else we want to talk about related to Eric Romare. Uh, we're gonna take a break, but we might do some bonus special episodes there's maybe a christmas episode mm-hmm. coming your way uh, some uh, cool interviews inter- interviews we got to arrange and put together um if you have uh questions comments stuff we we should organize a mailbag episode in the near future yeah. to talk about uh, some things but shoot us a message we're uh, at romare we're at uh i'm on twitter at well <laughs> for as long as it lasts at liam g billingham and also, you can contest, uh, contact us at Romercast on Instagram. That's probably the best way to ensure a message with the billionaire-caused collapse of Twitter. <laughs> uh, and you can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd at the Brown Sean S H A U N. Can you message people on Letterboxd? No, you can comment. Comment. You, you can comment, comment on the reviews. Like, that sucks. Yeah. I hated yeah, that. Yeah. And you can hard review. Uh, but but oh, but heart. no direct messages. No DMs. There's hey, no letterbox if DMs. If you haven't hearted this podcast by rate reviewing and subscribing to it, I don't like you. I don't like your face. I don't like your attitude. Rate review and subscribe to the show, please. I think it. I Do think it it's supposed us. to help. This. This is what I've it heard. Helps. This is what I've heard. So if you guys are listening, to it. It's easy. Or, you know, what helps even more is asking us a question, engaging us in the process. Like, we're more interested in, like, listeners engaging than we are in, like, reviews that are like, this show rocks. Though those are nice, too, and will definitely help. I I know zero Um, about the numbers on this show, and I really really like that. So I would like for you to keep me in the dark forever. We are often in the top 200 uh, film podcasts, so that's cool. That is cool. It is cool. cool. People are listening. That is cool. That is fucking dope. That's oh wow, monster oh, truck motherfucker. Oh, okay, Sean okay, okay. Wait, so that's fucking dope, dude. Monster truck motherfucker here to say thanks for listening to this episode of Romercast. Boom, 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 boom. What? Season two rap motherfuckers. Adieu, adieu, adieu. Amazing. If you want this character back. Hey, everybody, it's Liam from the future. Just a heads up that at this moment in the recording, um, no, my mic cut out. <laughs> if you want this character back, this is on my recording of the take over here. Just uh, just tweet monster truck pictures to Liam G. Billingham on Twitter. See you guys next episode. <laughs> Dirty ones he requested. If you could find one named after a Romare movie, if you could Photoshop, oh shit, Photoshop challenge, a monster truck with Romare titles on the side. Something to post on the gram. Liam can't be heard anymore, but he's reluctantly agreeing to these wild ideas. Peace. Peace.